I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Omar el joins me again. The journalist and writer has recently published a new novel, What Strange Paradise. I read it over the summer and found it moving and such an important book for our time. With uh, tens of millions of people forcibly displaced throughout the world today, it's often easy to look away or not realize how many lives are in peril. And it's startling, too, that a lot of those refugees are children. What Strange Paradise presents such vivid characters amidst unnamed and familiar settings? There's a ship that is sunk because it carries too many passengers of so many different backgrounds, Ethiopians, Syrians, Egyptians, Lebanese, Palestinians. There's even a sort of class system on board, usually having to do with race or how much one is able to pay. Bodies are washing up on the shores of an island. It's not explicitly named, but it's all too familiar. There are the images we've seen in the media, on the news, images we see of children. Yet, in Mr. Alakad's book, we see the crisis through the eyes of children. There's a nine-year-old Syrian boy who has seemingly survived, not gotten caught by officials, but a teenage girl named Vanna, a native of the island. Both do what it takes to elude those trying to find them. It's uh, often harrowing, and they don't speak the same language, yet they connect. It's a beautiful book, too. Omar al work as a journalist has taken him to Guantanamo Bay, Afghanistan, and other places in the world. He received a Canadian National Newspaper Award for investigative journalism, one of the many accolades he's received. His writing has appeared in The Guardian, Le Monde, Guernica, and The Globe and Mail. He was first on the program in 2017 when his debut novel, American War, was published. It went on to be listed as one of the best books of the year by the New York Times, the Washington Post, GQ, NPR, and Esquire. The BBC named it one of the 100 novels that shaped our world. Visit omaralakad.com for more information. This new book is published by McClelland and Stewart. We taped this interview in mid-July. Mr. Alakad called in from his home in Portland, Oregon. Please uh, welcome back to the Planta on the Line program, Omar Alakad. Mr. Alakad, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. So when the book opens, um, you paint such a vivid picture of what we see. Um, it seems familiar in, in one instance because it's something that we have seen on, on the news. And then uh, I, I've seen some reviewers refer to the images that we saw of Alan Curdy. When we see Amir, how old is he? He is nine years old. I see. And and the instinct to flee, to run away, where does that come from? I think there's a kind of basic agency, basic desire for agency that every human being has. In the case of Amir specifically, I mean, we're talking about a young child, and in the story, he essentially follows along because his stepfather is trying to get on a boat to get to Europe and he doesn't fully comprehend what's happening and he ends up on the boat as a result. Um, So he's sort of swept along in what happens. But everyone else on that boat is effectively trying to get to a place where they have some agency over their own lives and they're being led by this, this communal fantasy that if they can just get to the West that all of these problems will fade away. Um, and I think the book in general is just is essentially about these dueling fantasies, fantasies about what the West can be uh, versus fantasies that are in the West about what these people coming here really are. And they're, they're fantasies that belong to the people that, that have them, but they're also not 
their own in the sense that uh, they get them from other people, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I, I still sort of remember when I was very young, uh, I, I was born in Egypt, and I spent the first five years of my life there, mm-hmm. and uh, then I lived in the Middle East. And in the summers, um, we would sometimes go on summer vacation because it got incredibly hot in the Middle East, and we had to get out of there. Um, and we had end up in places like, I remember walking around Paris, and looking at some of the architecture and wondering why these French people had picked up our architecture back from Egypt, why, why they had chosen to design their buildings this way. And it never occurred to me that we were colonized by these people, mm-hmm. and that's why, you know, the place I grew up looks that way. I think a lot of times these forces, they meet you long before you, you know you've met them. Um, and it's the same is true, I think, with conceptions of what these faraway places really are uh, versus what you believe them to be or what you need them to be so that you can imagine a better life for yourself. The, the Calypso is the vessel in which they, they, um, uh, they find themselves in um, before they land where they do. Um, what does it look like? I mean, um, and, and how many people? I mean, the, the other thing that I was thinking about the last couple of days since I finished the book, um, that I couldn't get over was was the, the there was an upstairs I guess and a downstairs where and 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 there was a class divide even in in a, in a boat like that. Yeah, I mean, so so the calypso in, in the novel is this sort of very old, very overburdened fishing skiff um, that has far far more people on it than than it can safely handle, um, or that it could have safely handled even mm-hmm. when it was a safe vessel. Um, and what you refer to, the sort of upper deck, lower deck divide, um, is something that I saw in a lot of my research of, of, of the migrant passage across the Mediterranean, which is um, effectively a kind of wealth-based, uh, racist uh, divide. Mm-hmm. Uh, overwhelmingly, the skin color of the people who are relegated to the lower decks is darker than the skin color of the people who are allowed onto the upper decks. Um, and this is not a minor distinction because if these ships go under, mm. the people on the upper deck have a much, much better likelihood of surviving. Um, and you see this throughout the, the migrant journey. If you are from Eritrea and you are trying to escape to Europe, by the time you get to the boat, which is an incredibly perilous journey, yeah. it's still not nearly as perilous as what you had to go through to get to the boat in the first place to get across the desert, to deal with smugglers, um, to be mistreated in almost every way imaginable. Um, you continually see these hierarchies built in, even when you're talking about the most destitute human beings. Um, there is still someone there willing to exploit them and willing to exploit them along the gradient of race, wealth, whatever system of prejudice is built into to, um, this particular passage. So the other protagonist in the book is Vanna. Um, how old is she? So she's a teenager. She's sort of coming into her own. She is. Um, she. It's never sort of explicitly stated in the book, but she is um, half Swedish, half Greek. Mm-hmm. Uh, she comes from sort of mixed ancestry, and she is trying to figure out who she is and what her place is on this this island, um, which again is not sport, it's sort of specified. It's. It, um, a semi-fantastical place in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's trying to figure out what it means to be a decent human being 
um, in this context. And in the middle of that, she um, basically collides with this boy. He, he shows up. He's running away from um, from these soldiers and, and, and police officers who want to catch him because he's the sole survivor of the shipwreck. And she takes him in, and she effectively makes it, you know, makes his safety her mission, and that's her way of trying to find goodness in the world and trying to be a decent human being. And how much of her, her journey in, ter, ter, um, in terms of um, uh, helping Amir as well as figuring out how to be good in the world is, is motivated by what she sees around her? I think part of it is, is that she is a resident of this island that is part of the West, but it's also sort of a tourist trap. It's it's one of these islands that, uh, you know, people go for week-long holidays where they're drunk the entire time and they go to the disco and they have a great time and they get, they get out of there. Um, and she can't stand that. She can't stand that, that culture, um, that culture of sort of, you know, these, these temporary tourists who show up. Um, and so she's, I, I, I think for her, there is an element of of self-interest in trying to help this child. Um, she wants to be the sort of person who helps him. It's, it's important to her conception of being a good person. And so in a strange way, there's a kind of privilege built into to her helping him out, mm-hmm. which is the privilege of trying to make yourself a, a, a better person by helping someone who was born into a position beneath you. Um, so she's having, I think, a, a somewhat complicated discussion with her own sense of privilege and, and how to be a, a, a good person, regardless of what what position you're born into. Yeah, she contends with that, um, especially um, near, near the end of the book in, in, in quite a dramatic way. Um, at, at the same time, um, there's a lot of luck, I guess, in, in, involved in... in what she does, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the interesting things about the, about this book that I that I didn't quite expect was um, when I when I finished, I think it was about the fourth or fifth draft. I decided to finally show it to someone, so so four people ended up reading it. The first four readers were my agent, my agent's friend, and then two of my close friends. Mm-hmm. And all four came back. They came back with four entirely different interpretations of what had happened in this book, um, which I was I was not particularly ready for. I don't think, um, in my mind, there's there's a real sort of distinction between reality and fantasy in that book, and um, and I think that plays a little bit into into Vanna's journey, and particularly Vanna and Amir towards the end of the of the novel. Um, that distinction between the world as we'd like it to be versus the world as it really is. Um, um, is it, it plays a big part in, in this in this novel, and I'm being sort of deliberately obtuse so as to yeah, not give away certain yeah. parts of it, but, but that was on my mind when I was writing it. Yeah. The, um, the antagonist, I guess, for, for lack of a better word to describe him, Colonel Kethros, um, how we view him through, throughout the book, um, I, I guess that's largely shaped by how he's viewed by Vanna, isn't it? Yeah, so, so the book is in large part a, a repurposed fable. It's, it's effectively the story of Peter Pan 
completely sort of um, reinterpreted um, as the story of a contemporary child refugee. Uh, and Colonel Kethros is my Captain Hook character. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is, he is in my mind, um, the most honest character in the book in the sense that he he is quite honest with himself about about his xenophobia, about his racism, about where he stands in the world. Whereas a lot of the other characters in 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 the book who are in a in a who are fundamentally much more moral and morally good are constantly having to lie to themselves uh, to get through the day. Colonel Kethros doesn't have that problem. Um, and he, I think, he, 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 he exhibits the sort of, you know, traditional masculinity and, and the kind of traits that, that, um, that soldiers think of yeah. in terms of what makes a man. Um, and it's, it's in large part what makes him who he is, but also what makes him um, capable of, of doing some pretty horrific things. He's not an easy character to like, and, and I, I I don't even come away from, from having finished the book enjoying reading about him. Um, but we do we do see, uh, as the book progresses, how he came to be what he is. And, and um, I, I guess that's why I wondered if um, how we view him early on. I guess we, we do view him through, through Vanna's eyes, and, and I guess that's... How she sees him as well, right? I mean, I, I guess she, she she doesn't see the full measure of him or where, 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 what he's about, but what what we what she sees of him, I think, is enough to to really explain him, I guess, right? Yeah, I mean, part part of that is that, in my mind, again, um, the way she sees him is largely as a kind of negative space. Um, he he represents so much of what her father isn't. Um, her father is almost the exact opposite in terms of, of how he interacts with the world. Um, and so when she, the, the way she interprets him as a person, I think, is so intertwined with her own father not having any of those qualities. Um, and, and there's obviously sort of moments in the book where, where that clash is, is fairly evident. Um, but I think that's, that's part of the reason she she naturally has an antagonism towards uh, towards him, but also a kind of fear, uh, yeah. fear of what he might be capable of. Yeah, um, the the point of view of the of the children is, is such a powerful way to tell the story. You mentioned a moment ago you did some research, I guess, in the course of of, of writing this book, um, and the point of view of children is is not something that we usually um, read about when we when we um, see say st- stories about children. In the news, what sort of research did you do in terms of, of the experiences of children as you depict them in, in, in your book? Some of the interactions and some of the, the way of, of looking at the world is taken from my own childhood experiences. Um, and and over the course of conceiving the ideas that, that led to this book and then writing it and then rewriting it, uh, and finally, you know, the final edits, which was a process of about four years. Um, mm-hmm. Over that time, uh, I went from having no children to having a daughter, to having a daughter and a son. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the time I spent around children uh, increased uh, exponentially. And, and um, I think that I am 
drawn to that particular perspective um, because I think childhood constitutes the only real honest interaction we have with the world. I think into adulthood there are enough pressures and conceits and, and we are compelled to behave in certain ways that I think take some of that honesty out um, of our interactions with the world. And so, you know, I, I, I'm a guy who writes about things that make me angry. Um, my writing is uh, pretty heavily political. Um, and because I'm writing about these topics, I think I am drawn to the perspective of children because it brings with it a kind of honesty that renders these injustices in stark relief. Um, so I think that's why I'm drawn to that place. I don't know if I do it well or not. That's an entirely different question. But um, with both my first novel and now this one, um, the starting point has been has been the point of view of children. There's so many moments in the book, little moments where um, I think it was yeah, I think it was Vanna, who um, uh, you write um, she equates waiting as um, interminable waiting as um, say po- she associates that with poverty, and and that's the only I mean it, it's such a uh, a great way to see how a kid would think that. And how that might say carry on as one grows up, even though one might know sort of the the you know you know how poverty happens. I mean, it, it's still a feeling that one associates with with that. And and I guess um, are, are things like that things that you drew upon, say, from your own childhood. Yeah, I mean, we had you know, I went from from when I was living in Egypt, we. My father couldn't find work, and the political situation was was getting pretty bad. And um, we actually, he found a job in Libya, and so we were all packed up and set to go. And we're we're in the airport, and uh, the way Arabic names work is that, you know, your first name, and then your middle name is your father's name, and then Mm -hmm. his father's name, and so on and so forth. So my father's name was Mohammed. And his father's name was Ahmed. Well, Muhammad Ahmed happens to be the most common, you know, two-name combination in the world, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, it turns out that there was a Muhammad Ahmed on the um, terrorism watch list. So as we're waiting to get on the plane to Libya to start this new life in Libya, um, he gets called into secondary, uh, gets detained. We miss the flight, and he misses the opportunity to go. And not long after that, he finds a job in, a, in Qatar, uh, on the sort of other side of, of the, the sort of Arabian world. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Qatar ends up being the richest country on earth. I end up having this upper middle class existence um, for the next 11 years of my life because of a coin toss that happened in Cairo Airport when my dad's name was confused with that of a terrorist. Mm-hmm. And I, it completely, completely changed the trajectory of my life, my relationship with wealth, my relationship with comfort, um, and I had nothing to do with it. None of us had anything to do with it. I've always come to sort of associate poverty as as being something that costs a lot of time and costs a lot of money. Mm. Um, You know, the poorer you are, the, the longer you have to wait to get whatever service, and the poorer you are, the cheaper the thing you have to buy. It breaks down more often. You have to buy it more times. Meanwhile, the rich person 
has bought the best version of that thing never needs to replace it and has actually spent less than you uh, over time. Um, and so I do think of those two costs of, of poverty uh, as being time and, and money. It, it costs a lot of money to be poor, and it takes up a lot of your time. It brings up another thing that I've been thinking about as I was reading the book is that the, the decisions that, that people make, um, whether knowingly or unknowingly, um, affect another person so much. And and that goes with, with say, bad things that happen to people. I mean, they, 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 that um, I guess... Um, we shouldn't be so flippant, or we shouldn't. We should really think about another person when we make a decision that might affect our, ourselves only. That we, that we think only affects us, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think about that a lot. I think it's it's sort of it's related very closely to to what I think is the the fundamental purpose of storytelling, which is to get someone to not look away. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think every writer is trying in their own way to to achieve that goal. Um, you know, there's a line in the book. One of the characters on on um, on the boat is uh, this Palestinian guy who all he wants to do is just be left alone to read his books. That's that's. And at one point he says, you know, something along the lines of, um, "Books are good for the soul. You know, books will wean you off cruelty." And the smuggler's apprentice says, you know, "Well, what are you going to be left with then?" Um, there is this this idea of of all storytelling as essentially a means as essentially working against the privilege of instantaneous forgetting um, you're you're trying to get someone not to look away um, I think that's certainly the only thing I'm trying to do in a grand sense when i when I write any of my stories is you just want someone to not look away. The other thing that I was curious about, Omar, as I was reading the book, was um, how you wrote it. Um, the, the book alternates between the past and the present. Um, you obviously didn't write it that way, did you? I um, started with with an entirely different structure in the sense that, um, so at one point this book had um, had monologues from each of the people on the boat. Uh-huh. Uh, that was one of the, the, the sort of... Um, containers in, uh, in in the book, and I took that out. It felt like it was too clunky. Um, but I um, I had started writing um, much longer chapters that alternated between, you know, how this, this child ended up on the island and what happened after he ended up on the island. Those were mixed together, uh, and then I split them apart uh, sort of after the fact. Um, I decided to, to alternate. And I decided to also change the tense. So the, the, the chapters that take place on the island uh, are all present tense, and the chapters that lead up to the island are all past tense. Yeah, it, 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 um, I, I, I was thinking about it as I was starting the book, and, and um, you know, I wondered why, why you didn't write it say, in, a, in a chronological sense, but I, I thought it, it was, made, made it so much more powerful. Um, because I, I'm one of these people, I don't read fiction very well, and so I want to know what happens. And as I sort of let go of that notion, um, I, I learned to enjoy it as much as I did. And, and I was quite moved by it, as I told you just before we started. Um, I so appreciate your time today. Congratulations on this book, Omar, and good luck with it. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure speaking with you again. 
The website for more is at omarelakad.com. The book, What Strange Paradise, is published by McClelland and Stewart. Its author, Omar Alaka, joined me on the line from Portland, Oregon, in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plunton.